0: 1 Corinthians 15 constitutes the fifth of five major sections in this letter. And it expresses some glorious truths. So we'll spend some time looking at them the next three weeks. But today, let's begin by reading the first 11 verses, First Corinthians 15, verses 1 through 11. The apostle says, Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I deliver to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God I am what I am. And his grace towards me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. Whether then it was I or they, so we preach, and so you believed. This is God's word. Would you pray with me now? Heavenly Father, we rest in your unfailing kindness, love, mercy, and grace. You really, truly have never failed. Nothing that you've done has been unsuccessful or frustrated or uh, changed around in light of different circumstances. You always do what you set out to do. And the proof of that is just so clear in this reality that you raised Jesus from the dead. And so, Father, we rejoice in this fitting frame for this letter that on the one hand, we preach Christ crucified, but on the other, we preach Christ who left the empty tomb. That tomb is no longer occupied. And so that's our hope, Father. We, we know that everything rests in that, and I ask that you would enable us to tie that to everyday life today, 2,000 years later. Help us to see that there is nothing more impactful, nothing more practical than internalizing the reality that Christ died for sinners and rose again. And Lord, if there are any here today who do not believe that, who have not received that gospel, I pray that today would be the day that you would open their eyes, that you would convict them of sin and righteousness and judgment, and that you would welcome them into your family through repentance and faith. Lord, we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. If you're a leader, that is, if you have a sphere of influence that you hope to uh, have influence over, uh, maybe a a family, a, a classroom full of kids, a group of friends, a team at work, some sphere of impact, then you probably want the kind of influence you have over that group to be positive, not negative. You want to inspire, not discourage, right? You want to motivate, not frustrate. In order to do that, you choose your words carefully. You use positive, uplifting, encouraging words, not negative words. You may even try to avoid using words like no or not. People don't like to hear no, right? As parents, we quickly become experts at avoiding the word no, don't we? Little Ronnie comes up and asks, Dad, can we go camping this weekend? And what do we say? Do we say no? No. What, that, that's, that is uh, not expert parenting, okay? Expert parents, we don't say no. We say, Maybe. what do we say? Maybe? Or how about, we'll see, right? And little Ronnie, he knows what that means. Mom, can we go to McDonald's tomorrow? Well, we'll see. (laughs) Uh, Let me see what your mom says. That's one I've used. But we don't like to say, no, it seems so final and so abrupt, and, and we tend to avoid these outright negative words. But what if I told you that one of the most inspiring words of all is actually the most negative, even more emphatic than no. I'm talking about the word never. Never. That's a negative word. But never can be a call to action. The late British Prime Minister Winston Churchill understood this. He was a master at leading with language. In fact, his biographer is famous for saying that on the uh, in the moments leading up to the famous Dunkirk uh evacuation, Churchill had mobilized the English language and sent it into battle, but it was a speech given more than a year later as the Second World War dragged on, uttered not in the halls of parliament, but actually at his alma mater, a boys' school called Harrow, that Churchill would take up the word never and hurl it into the air like a mighty spear and inspire a generation of young men and in fact the whole world to fight for justice and freedom. Here's what he told them. Never give in. Never give in. Never, 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 never. In nothing, great or small, large or petty. Never give in except to convictions in honor of, uh, of honor and good sense. Never yield to force. Never yield to the apparently overwhelming might of the enemy. I, I mean, doesn't that just crackle in your bones? Like, never give in. I, I love that. That would make a great alarm clock. Never yield to the comfort of your covers. <laughs> that word never is really powerful. So this morning I want I want us to see in our passage today three nevers. Now I'm not going to come out and say them at the beginning because I want you to catch them as we pick them up along the way. And kids, if you're taking notes, I want I want to see if you can pick them out, all right? So Kids, take notes. See if you can tell me what the three nevers are after the service. Uh, You'll have to listen carefully, but the first never appears in verses 1 and 2, and it has to do with the gospel's centrality. Read verse 1 with me again. The apostle says, I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel. What is the gospel, and why does Paul feel the need to remind us about it? Well, the word gospel just means good news. Kids, kids, where you at? You here? Uh, when I say the word gospel, I want you to say the word good news. Gospel. Gospel. You know what the gospel is. It's the good news, right? So, for example, when the armies of a great king or emperor Uh, Went out to battle, and they won the battle, and they gained the victory. And the army was coming home with the spoil. They knew that their families back home would want to know what happened. They would want to hear the good news, and so they would send somebody out ahead of the army, and he would race on a, a fast horse back into town, and he would say, "Hey, I've got an announcement to make. I've got to tell you the good news. We won. We're we're victorious. And your husband, and your son, and your brother, they're coming back home." We have the victory. That's what the gospel is. It sounds like a church word, but it's really not a church word originally. It's just a word, and it means good news. Now, Paul is talking about a specific gospel, not just any good news, not the good news about a battle or that something cool happened in another city, but the gospel of King Jesus. Jesus won the battle, and we'll talk about how in a minute. But before we do, let me just point something out that I found surprising the first time I really began to study this text. Don't skip over that word, remind. He says, I want to remind you of the gospel. Like, wait a second, remind? Why would Paul want to do that? Remind means they already know it. Why would he waste precious parchment space on something they already knew? Why does he want to remind them? I thought the gospel is something we're supposed to share with unbelievers so that They'll pray the sinner's prayer and get saved, and then they're supposed to get baptized, and then they come to church and they start writing a check and tithing, and they start serving like in the nursery and maybe as an usher or something like that. And then, when they're spiritually mature, we move on from the gospel and we start telling them the really cool things about the Bible, like, you know, the important theological questions, like, what are the four beasts of Daniel? Like we've really got to spend a lot of time of that on that. Or, or uh, let, let's talk about predestination or process theology and really get into the weeds of of systematic theology. That's what mature Christians do. They they leave the gospel behind and they move on to more interesting things, right? Paul says, whoa, that's not what we do. Whatever the gospel is, it's not something we we leave behind. It's something we remind ourselves about. And if you read on into the second half of verse 1 and then verse 2, you'll notice that the gospel is something that we receive at a point in time in the past. It's something we stand in in the present, and it's something we need to keep holding fast to because it's going to save us in the future. That means that whether you're completely new to Christianity, you have no clue what we've been singing about, this is so brand new to you you don't know, or you've been a Christian for 20 or 30 or 50 years doesn't matter you need the gospel so here's our first never based on the gospel centrality never let go of the gospel never let go of the gospel the good news that jesus won the battle that he died for our sins and then rose again that's something we should never move on from never Hold on to it. Stand in it. Take it around with you. Chew on the truth of the gospel every day. That's the thing that's going to sustain you. Here at Indian Creek, from time to time, you'll hear me say that we, we try our best to be a gospel-centered church. Uh, at one time, that was almost a fad or a trend to say we're a gospel-centered church. But when I say it, I mean it. I've been a part of churches where the gospel is assumed rather than repeated. Where the gospel is minimized rather than maximized. Where the gospel is covered up rather than lifted up. I've been in churches where the preacher can hold forth for an hour and give all sorts of explanations and illustrations and make everybody cry one moment and laugh the next moment and never say anything about the death, burial, and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. I've been in churches that seem to be all about the traditions and the gospel is nowhere to be found or where it's all about family and the gospel is nowhere to be found, or where it's all about really good music and there's no gospel, or where it's all about serving others but there's no gospel, where it's all about forming relationships in the community and yet the gospel is strangely absent from the vocabulary of the church. Let's take all of those scenarios and turn them on their head. We want to be the opposite of that. We want the gospel in the middle of everything that we're doing. And by the way, if you're a member of Indian Creek, and you say, well, this thing that we're doing that has nothing to do with the gospel. Come talk to me about that. That's not good. We want everything to be tied to the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Because the reality that I am a sinner destined for wrath, but Jesus died to take my place and destroy the devil and cancel my guilt, and then he rose from the dead, showing that even death itself had been defeated. That reality, that, that changes the way that I live every aspect of the way that i live when i really let it sink in to who i am it changes the way i think about suffering because it reminds me that suffering is temporary because even death was defeated by the lord jesus christ and that's the hope of the believer it changes the way that i think about sin because it reminds me just how gravely serious sin is i can't think i can't excuse away the sinful choices that i've made when i remember that jesus hung on that cross for me It changes the way I think about justice and mercy because it reminds me that I deserve to die, but Jesus took my place. It changes the way I think about my own reputation. Nobody ever anywhere can say anything about me that's worse, that's more harsh than the reality that my sin was covered up by the suffering of the Son of God. So uh, my reputation, I, I... doesn't matter because I know that I'm a sinner who's been redeemed and welcomed into the family of God changes the way I think about my purpose I realize that if people don't get what I have in Christ then they will perish forever it it changes everything it's very practical it's central so when it comes to the gospel never 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 let go Our second never comes from verses 3 through 7, and it has to do with the gospels Not the gospel's centrality, but the gospel's historicity. If the gospel is good news that we need to hang on to, well, then what exactly is the news? What is the announcement we're supposed to remember? In verses 3 through 7, Paul very neatly summarizes two events and two evidences of those events. Here are the two events. Christ died. Christ rose from the dead. Those are the two events. Here are the two evidences. Christ was buried. Christ was seen. He appeared to these other people. So imagine uh, for a moment that you're a journalist. Not a hack. Not one of these ones that we have today, okay? Uh, But a really good journalist. Like your job is to report on what's happened, right? So kids, just close your eyes, use your imagination. Imagine you're a journalist, and you write about important things that take place in the exotic places of the world, like the rainforest or the uh, desert or the snowy mountains, and that's your job. You go travel around the, the world, and you find out what really happened, and then you write about it. And one day, your boss comes to you and says, listen, there's a rumor going around that a family of chimpanzees in central africa built themselves a real tree house with a rope swing and a drawbridge and that is a big story if it's true so i want you to get on a plane tomorrow morning and i want you to fly over there and go into the rainforest and i want you to find these chimpanzees and tell me whether it's true or not and then you're going to write about it and so you say yes sir and so you go to the airport the next day and you fly out. And what wh- what are you trying to do at that point, kids? You're trying to do two things. Number one, you're trying to find out what happened. What actually happened? What are the events? Did the chimpanzees really build the treehouse or not? And then you're trying to find what? Proof or evidence that that's actually what happened so that you can tell people, hey, I'm